We've all seen robotic surgery in science fiction movies. How is it working in real life for prostate cancer patients? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, and our guest is Dr. Ash Tawari, Director of Robotic Prostatectomy and Prostate Cancer Urologic Oncology Outcomes at Brady Urology Institute, and Associate Professor of Public Health and Outcomes at the Weill Medical College of Cornell University. He's also an associate attending at the New York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Tawari joins us to talk about robotic surgery for prostate cancer. Dr. Tawari, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Dr. Bloom, for having me in the program. So let's talk about the early development of robotic surgery. When were these systems first developed and how were you involved? I think this is a story about serendipity. This system was actually developed by scientists in the Department of Defense, MIT, and NASA. And they were working on a tool which can allow surgeons to kind of make small surgical procedures when a patient is in space or when the patient is in the battlefield. Some of the surgeons saw this tool, which we call a robot, and thought that possibly this is their extension in terms of getting inside the patient's body without actually needing to cut him. And that's exactly what has been done. I got involved uh, with the surgery in about 1999. This robot was available for some other kind of surgical procedures, but the prostate, I think people had just started thinking about it. I was in Michigan, and I was working with Professor Menon there, and we got involved in the procedures, and it used to take a whole day for us to finish operations. And now I day about four to five cases every day, and I'm done with it. So it's been a journey which has been very exciting. This is a technology which has a tremendous potential. And basically what it does, it allows surgeons to feel as if their fingers are inside the patient's body and also get in a 3D immersive view inside the body so that we can see things in magnification. But we start seeing the structures which we never saw they existed before because of this magnification. Take our listening audience through what's going on. Where are you sitting? What are you touching? Where's the patient? What's the machine look like? See if you can sort of give us a visual of this. Okay, let's consider that we are in a big room, and in the center of that room is a table on which a patient is resting. Just very close to the patient there is a tower-like structure which has three hands coming towards the patient. This is about six, seven feet in height, and it's almost like in size of a linebacker, but not that heavy, but skinny, muscular, and metallic. And these arms have got small, tiny instruments which are attached to their tip. And these instruments are like pencil and pens, and they go inside patient's body. This tower is actually attached through a cable, and it connects to an area which is very much like a video console, that a surgeon sits there comfortably, looks inside that box, resting his forehead onto the visual angle and visual resting area, and he can see things in magnification. That is how it is done, and underneath that console are two joysticks, which are controlled by the surgeon, and the instruments inside the patient's body move in real time 
based on what that surgeon is doing with his fingers. And that is how he controls the instruments. There is a camera also attached to one of the central arms of the robot. That camera goes inside. It has already provided a magnification. And patients inside stands out as if we are looking into an immersive atmosphere. And how long did it take you to get comfortable with this kind of surgery versus the conventional surgery when you were standing at the patient? I think it was initially a little bit different. The best way to describe that, you need some getting used to losing that touch and contact in the personal part of the patient's body. But once you get past that, and that may take anywhere between 10 to 20 cases that you start feeling comfortable with this device, then, of course, there is a learning for doing a particular operation, which is beyond getting used to of the robot. Getting used to of the robot is very easy. The Da Vinci robot, which we use, is very easy to get used to. And have you seen with younger doctors coming up that played video games and those kinds of things, have they had an easier time adapting to this kind of surgery? Anyone who has got good hand-eye coordination will have very good experience with this robot. And, and younger people who have been exposed to the video platform, I think, will have a natural advantage there. But at the end of the day, the surgery, and whether it is done open or robotic, uh, is not that how facile you are on a video console. It's about knowing what you're doing, making right judgments, understanding the anatomy, and executing the task which is in hand. This all in combination, that's what determines whether the person will be a very successful surgeon or he will be an average person. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I'm speaking with Dr. Ash Tiwari, Director of Robotic Prostatectomy and Prostate Cancer Urologic Oncology Outcomes at Brady Urology Institute and Associate Professor of Public Health and Outcomes at the Weill Medical College of Cornell University about robotic surgery for prostate cancer. So are there different robotic systems and how do they differ? I think at this point, there isn't one predominant robotic system and, and that's known as the Da Vinci robot. There may be other robots uh, which may be being developed by other groups I think they are in an early stage. Some robots are working on steering a catheter or in a guide wire, but I don't think there is anything at this point, at least in my knowledge, which is as elaborate or precise as we see in the Da Vinci robot. Now, you described the sort of operating theater. Are there auxiliary personnel that are still doing suction and other things within the visual field or the surgical field, or is it the robot doing all the work? Oh, I think that's a great point, and I always call there are unsung heroes of robotic surgeries, and these are the surgical team members which uh, help the robotic surgeon in executing the suction, clipping the tissue, retracting the tissue, keeping the field clean, and retracting the area so that a robotic surgeon can do the job which he or she is supposed to do. And when you're doing this work, you're fairly close to the patient, but are you in the same room or are you in a different room? No, I'm in the same room within a couple of feet. Now, could you theoretically do this from a distance? I mean, could you be in another city and do this through telesurgery? It has been done uh, transatlantic. Really? And are there any issues with that, a time delay or anything? Does it depend on sort of the broadband connection and how much data can pass? The data connectivity is the limiting factor right now. And uh, I think you can find enough bandwidth to get this thing taken care of. There may be some milliseconds uh, delay that the movements may look a little awkward, but it is feasible at this point. 
that last time an experiment it was done, I think it was very expensive to get that one or two hours of data connection transatlantic. But someday you might be able to vacation in Tahiti and just stop for a couple of hours and do a surgery back in New York. I hope that day doesn't come in my life because I would rather be close to my patient and do what I'm supposed to do and not thinking about Tahiti. But I think that's going to happen. Are there better sterility issues using a robot and having less of the surgeon's hands and other things in there? Is that at all an issue? That may be a good point with any kind of a laparoscopy because all the laparoscopic procedures are done within small incisions and sterilized instruments that go in. So I think that benefit applies to the robot too. And you mentioned that there's at least three arms. Are they all working in the patient at the same time? Actually, they can be four arms too, and they all can be controlled by one surgeon based on which one of those arms he wants to engage. The central one controls the camera, and the left and right arms are there, which we use all the time. And how many laparoscopic incisions are necessary? Is there one for each of these arms, or are they all going through one? Actually, there are about four to five incisions which are happening, and we are working on some things in which possibly we can go in through one and then have more instruments attached to the tip, like a Swiss army knife kind of a thing. But I think these incisions are so small that at this point, I think it's working so well. How does the magnification help you as a surgeon, and how much magnification do you end up with? I end up with about 12-fold magnification. And depending on how close I come, it can be a little bit more magnified. But it's like day and light difference in terms of looking at the structures. These nerves, which we are trying to save, are actually just like in a couple of hairs. And if there is blood in the field and they are not magnified, it's difficult to see. And with this kind of a magnification, I see structures which I never saw them before. And are you able to use nerve stimulator or other things while you're in there to actually test the tissues like you would if you were doing regular surgery? We can. I mean, we can use any laparoscopic instrument as we would be using with any other kind of a surgery. Uh, but my strategy for nerve sparing is that I try not to handle it too much. And I try to perform it with the least amount of current or energy so that these nerves are very fragile. They're very delicate. And uh, less we see them, less we touch them, less we crush them, and less we pull them and less energy and heat we use around, I think better chances that this nerve will be functioning after the surgery. And was prostate cancer the first surgery that this was used in, or has it just become one of the surgeries that it's most effective for? I think it was basically meant to be used for other surgeries, and especially the cardiac ones. And it happened to fall in the hands of surgeons who were interested in using it for the prostate cancer surgery. And I think this was a marriage made in heaven because... Uh, we were looking for something which can work in very narrow confines of pelvis. It's in deep inside the body kind of an organ. It can bleed, and we were looking for some tool, and this happened to be that tool. Tell us what's so unique about this for the kind of cancer control that you need for the prostate with margin issues and being so close to the other tissues. Getting all the cancer out is one of the most important issues which we should be thinking about when we are embarking on prostate cancer surgery. I mean, many times patients ask me this question in so many different ways, and I can sum it up with one sentence. Main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And sometimes we lose that perspective. And we need to think about cancer control as in goal number one all the time. And especially in a scenario when cancer is always within millimeters of the surface, within millimeters from the nerves, within millimeters from the sphincter. So the margin of error is very minimum. That's what we have to look at it. 
every surgeon needs to kind of look at their own margin rates and they need to get all the cancer out. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Ash Tawari, Director of Robotic Prostatectomy and Prostate Cancer Urologic Oncology Outcomes at Brady Urology Institute and Associate Professor of Public Health and Outcomes at the Weill Medical College at Cornell University. And he was talking to us today about robotic surgery for prostate cancer. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening. This is Dr. George Viamontes in St. Louis, Missouri. You are listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.